CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, January the 30th starts now. Today on the show, Ben, the armchair sociologist, is joined by none other than CTU president, Stacey Davis-Gates. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, you want to know what's happening in politics or art or music in the city, well, just head to chicagoreader.com because it's all there for you. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Illinois Bails Out Trump Tuesday, and here's why. There's a lot of breaking news uh, that I wanted to talk about with my distinguished guest, Stacey Davis-Gates. I'm not allowed to move because I got mic troubles, people. I'm just revealing everything that's going on in my life. My whole universe is crumbling as we speak, at least my IT part of it. But anyway, we will survive, to quote Gloria Gaynor. So the Sun-Times had a big story today. This, I thought, this was the big <laughs> with Stacey about uh, migrants in Chicago. Uh, and I'd love to get her thoughts on this quote-unquote crisis, which I don't even call a crisis, but it's opportunity. Uh, obviously, nobody agrees with me on that one. What do you call it? I call it an opportunity. I've been calling it an opportunity for about a year now. And nobody listens to me. <laughs> it's the story of my life, Stacey Davis Gates. I call it an opportunity. And then I uh, also was, Stacey, I'll get to it. Uh, Cam Buckner, State Representative Cam Buckner's suggestion that he put in the Tribune, uh, which uh, had a lot of fun with last week when I talked about it. The Tribune is generally the editorial board, pretty worthless place. Uh, but I have to give him credit for putting Cam's essay in there. Uh, basically a warning to... Uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker and um, President Biden. No, no DNC unless you help Chicago with this. Uh, not just its migrant situation, not just housing migrants, but housing low-income people, people in desperate need for affordable housing in the city of Chicago. So all these things I want to talk about. But right before we came on the air, breaking news from uh, the Illinois Board of Elections. That is, uh, the Illinois Board of Elections punted football season, so I'll use a football metaphor, uh, on the issue of whether uh, Donald Trump should be allowed to stay in a ballot. Uh, this is me speaking, not Stacey, if your thoughts a little bit. I absolutely feel, he, of course, he should not be kept on the ballot. Of course, he led an insurrection. Of course, it violates a uh, key passage of the 14th Amendment. We've had legal experts on the show. We've discussed this again and again and again. It's obvious. If they had any guts, they'd do it. But this is the Illinois Board of Election Commissioners, folks. I've been following them since Stacey Davis-Gates was in grammar school, okay? They... <laughs> They're not going to kick out Trump no more than they kicked out Rahm. I don't know if Stacey remembers that one. Rahm Emanuel running in 2011. He violated the residency requirements. It was so freaking obvious. He should have been booted from the ballot. And they let him stay on. Why? Because they're not about to kick Rahm Emanuel off. 
That's why. And they don't have the guts to kick Donald Trump off. And part of me doesn't blame them. And um, because here's the here's the reality. Donald Trump led an insurrection against our government. He tried to topple democracy as we know it. He sent uh, a horde of angry Muslim white men to the steps of the Capitol. And they were threatening to kill Mike Pence. And when they finally broke through the police uh, that was valiant and trying to keep them out of the Capitol, they went looking for Nancy Pelosi. These, these are people who are ready to do some violence. It's a scary bunch. Anytime anyone dares to upset Donald Trump, he lets them know in his own way that he's got a mob ready to go after him. And he, he, I, I kind of think in my lifetime, have I ever seen a public official, official so openly contemptuous of judges and juries and prosecutors. It's so funny. We just got done in Illinois with this election. Uh, Kim Fox, remember that, ladies and gentlemen? She was up for re-election, and they go, oh, Kim, the, the MAGA Republicans and well, too many Democrats. Like, oh, Kim Fox, because of Kim Fox, the crime in the streets. Oh, because she just doesn't stand tough, doesn't stand up for law and order. You know, that's how they speak one way when it's Kim Fox. She was able to win re-election. Uh, but when it, when it comes to Donald Trump, it's like, hang him high. And I believe, I absolutely believe that judges have been intimidated. And I absolutely believe that somewhere in the back of their mind, they're afraid. They're afraid to confront Donald Trump. You look how Donald Trump is treating the judge uh, and the jury in uh, the E. Jean Carroll case in uh, uh, New York City. Where he would, he had now what is it, 88 million, 83 million was just a recent verdict. And, he, and the judge in that case told the jurors, whatever you do, do not reveal your identities because they're going to come after you. That, that's it. That, 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 that's, that's how much contempt Trump and MAGA have for law and order, even though they pound their chest about it all the time. So I wasn't surprised at the Illinois. I, I, I know people go, oh, Ben, you don't understand law. They always try to explain to me how I don't understand law. When they, oh, I know, in written, I, I can read. I may not have gone to law school, but I did to go to grammar school, okay? And I know how to read, all right? I can read the 14th Amendment like all the rest of you, and you all know the man violated the 14th Amendment when he led an insurrection. So you're either going to follow the law or you're not going to follow the law. You're going to either let them go on some kind of technicality that you cook up because you're afraid of the MAGA mob, or you're going to stand up for democracy in America. That's my thoughts on that topic. Without further ado, I bring on the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, good friend of the show, Stacey Davis-Gates. Welcome back, Stacey. Well, thank you. Happy New Year to you, sir. Oh, yeah. I didn't even say that to you before. We are happy now. Although, you know, there's that Larry David rule. I don't know if you ever watched the Larry David show. Yeah, you, you get to February 1. Is that what Larry... That's what I say. I don't, Larry David can have his own rules, but my rule is if I haven't seen you since the new year, I say it into February 1. All right. So happy New Year's right back at you. So just sort of piggybacking on what I opened with, and this was not on my list of things, but then it was on my list of things to talk about. You put something on, uh, I can't remember if it was Facebook or Instagram. I apologize for not remembering which one it was. And I immediately texted you. I go, if you want to talk about this, we got to talk about this. 
you were obviously caught up in a lot of other stuff. But look, here's the thing. You've been threatened. Your family has been threatened. MAGA doesn't play. And I think there's similar issues between what you went through, what every one of these judges has gone through, what the why the jurors are in like witness protection, uh, you know, uh, so your thoughts on the issues that I just raised? Um, that we are in uncharted territories in terms of what we have experienced. Um, so I'm 47. I made 47 back in December. And I've read about, I've taught units on the lack of um, convention, meaning like in politics, there's a convention, right? We, we figure out what we're for and we figure out what we're against and we engage on those issues, at least the veneer of it, right? But even the veneer of political engagement right now is a death match. Um, the MAGA Republicans behave as if facts are malleable, truth is selective, and the ability of them to bully um, through social media, the, through your mailbox, at your home, is unparalleled. And so, of course, a judge who is probably receiving death threats probably has security, um, probably has a family with security now, would make that comment. And you got to think about the impact that will have throughout this election season, especially for people who become surrogates against the Trump machine. You have to understand what that impact looks like um, after each contest that one of them will probably say is either legitimate or illegitimate. And then what happens after that? I don't think anyone is really prepared for a society where the leadership determines that the rules of engagement change as they need them to. Because that's what we're dealing with. It's like being on a, you like basketball. It's like being on a basketball court. You no longer get six fouls, you get 10, right? And, and we change the rule in the fourth quarter with three minutes to go, right? How do you play a basketball game like that? And then the referees get intimidated because the fans in the stand all have their guns you know, you know, aimed at them. So they begin to make calls that are different than the calls that they would make otherwise. So even those who are supposed to arbitrate, um, referee, call, foul, can't do that because they too fear for their safety and their livelihoods because it's so completely out of control. There are no more agreements. You know, I've been saying a lot lately that our society is without a social contract. And because that social contract doesn't exist in the way in which we all agree on some truths, that it's whatever people want to do and that's what we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And it is exemplified the best through Trump and his team. Go, just, what do you mean more specifically our society is without a social contract? Well, what do we agree on? Mm -hmm. What do we agree that government has to do? What do we agree that people have to have? 
corporations. <laughs> like at the core level, we get to have corporations and that we agree that that level of corporation is given and it is expected and that's what we're supposed to work for. We agree that there is a benefit from our society and that we, within that benefit, sacrifice some of our individual desires in order to maintain the whole. That's broken, right? The only place where it's practiced, where I practice it, you practice it in your faith community, right? Um, the fellowship, the congregation, um, we practice it in our union, right? Solidarity, unity. But how do we practice that in our like modern day society? What are the rules to engagement? What is the expectation of our engagement? And how do we agree on that engagement? You can't agree with Trump. Like, why would you ever debate him unless you are ready to like have the type of debate that he's about to have, right? Because his debate is not going to be truthful. It, his debate is not going to be by the parameters already set out by the moderators, right? So how do you prepare for that debate? Mm -hmm. It's just like, how do you prepare for a basketball game where the other team is going to behave as if they have limitless fouls or that they can double dribble, they can travel, right? Like all of the conventions of the game change as the game is going depending on who wants what to happen and when yeah. you can't I, play that game you can't and that's a great metaphor i i've been the analogy i've been using which i think i'm going to switch to your analogy uh and uh i've been the analogy i've been using is playing tennis without a net mm. uh and uh back in the day what a tennis player i was Stacey davis gates and that day was a long time ago probably, probably never really existed but anyway uh, I love tennis very much, but if there's a net, you, you got to get the ball over the net. Uh, there are out-of-bound lines. You got to hit the ball within the, the lines. Uh, and uh, you're right. It's I think the basketball metaphor uh, is even better because it involves the referees. So that's we, what I mean by a social contract. The social contract and <laughs> like, what was it? Locke and Hobbs and Rousseau. I haven't done that in a long time. Um, our individualism is secondary to the collective of the society and the needs of all of us. Yeah. And we agree on that. That is the infrastructure of our democracy or republic, if you will, in this country. And he's like to hell with that. And so when the actor who is the most one of the most popular political figures with the most rabid following is saying that we're in trouble and we're even in more trouble if the other side of this paradigm is still behaving as if the social contract, right? The rules of engagement are still in play because they're not, and that's scary. Right. I'm not I'm not chiding anyone for not wanting to participate in chaos, <laughs> you know, because because that's what Donald Trump and his merry band of robbers are. They are chaos creators. They are agents of chaos.
And so this idea that anyone raises their hand to say, I want to participate in that, that's crazy too, right? And, and kind of where we are right now. Oh, it is where we are. Uh, and before I leave this topic, uh, if you were a, a Supreme Court justice, would you allow Trump to stay on the ballot? No, I think it, I think the evidence is clear that he led, not participated, but led, not unwittingly, but from the front, led an insurrection. Shit, we saw it. Like, I watched it on television. Leading up to it, you see the tweets, you see all of the provocation, the instigation. Yo, like, give me a break. Like, just because you want to deny what's happening in front of you doesn't mean it did not happen. Yeah, I, uh, I'm with you 100%. We have him calling. The, by the way, yeah, Illinois Board of State Election, he, he was calling your counterparts in Georgia and Michigan, asking them to throw away ballots. Deny, basically, wherever there was a large collection of Black voters, deny their votes. So then you couple that, couple that behavior. I am, so his, his intention was to specifically appeal to white folks who are in charge of the elections process to marginalize the vote of Black people. His buddy in um, Florida, DeSantis, blessed a new way of teaching American history that says that my ancestors got on a cruise ship on the west side of Africa, right? Yeah. And traveled across the Atlantic, dropped off in the, the, the colonies to practice a skill so they could be productive workers in the world. That's what DeSantis wants you to believe. So you have a situation now where it's not just like we don't agree on some stuff. You are working on a different plan for Black people in particular. You really are. You know, the attacks on diversity, um, equity and inclusion um, programs, affirmative, affirmative action, this um, cherry picking of Black men to, to say that, you know, society hasn't worked for them. It's kind of like no shit. <laughs> Like you actually created a space that doesn't work for most people except for perhaps you. And so this idea that we don't clarify the stakes in this moment, it, it will get us in trouble. I am concerned. I am very concerned about how leadership is clear identifying, right? That's the first thing identifying this moment for the good people of this country, clarifying the states that we will be impacted with if we do not engage on the stakes in which they are creating. Women, your uterus does not belong to you. Black people, you can't vote and we want you in the job training program down south. What does that sound like? Slavery. You asked the question. I assume it wasn't rhetorical. Well, okay. This wasn't even on the list, but since you <laughs> took me here, let's go. Classic Stacey Davis Gates conversation. I feel the same way you do. And you express my feelings uh, very well there. I've, uh, as an old, I'm way older than you, but I, this is the 
the, the most fragile moment, in my humble opinion, that we've had in my lifetime. And uh, I mean, anyway, I won't compare it to 68 or whatever. The point is, it's very fragile. And um, and yet, I don't, I don't get the concern. I don't, I don't sense that uh, people feel it as strongly as I do. And I hang around with a lot of lefties, so I, that's the space I'm in. Uh, and uh, like, oh, I'm not voting for Biden. And then they'll have a reason, bunch of reasons. A lot of it has to do with uh, his support of Israel, the blind support of Netanyahu, uh, which we'll get into that maybe at the end. Uh, we'll get it eventually because uh, the city council is about to have a vote of resolution. Uh, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to, I know I can't convince you <laughs> right now where you're at that uh, a vote, it's, it's a vote against Trump uh, is absolutely necessary. Stacy, I feel it's like people don't want to hear the lesser of two evils argument right at this moment, but I, I absolutely firmly believe in it. That sometimes you just got to take a stand, uh, even if the person that you're you're taking you're not. It's almost like you're not even taking a stand on behalf of Joe Biden. You're taking a stand on behalf of playing by the rules. As you put it, you get what I'm saying? And I just don't think it's people are buying into it right now. Your thoughts? Well, I think that the most important piece of the 24 election cycle is going to be the president of UAW, Sean Fain. Um, I got to hang out with them last Wednesday um, before they endorse uh, President Biden. And he gave what is perhaps the best endorsement to his membership about the why. Sean Fain has, so first off, we need a Sean Fain everywhere in the labor movement. A white dude who can see all of the pieces of our society, how they're interconnected and the impact on the pieces of our society if we are not engaging in solidarity. Like, I see that in how he's led his union to prominence. The results have been profound. That said, he made it real simple last Wednesday. He said, Donald Trump is a scab and we are workers. Don't make it more complex than what it has to be. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but he's a billionaire masquerading as a working class hero. And oh yeah, by the way, when you examine the evidence, he's literally a scab. And you know how we feel about scabs in our movement. And so doing that short circuits the discussion on ideology. It short circuits the discussion on the manipulation of race and gender in these spaces. What it does is that it identifies his members rightly as workers. And so I had a conversation this past weekend where I was asking another labor leader um, from Champaign, Mike Stitch. And I was like, um, how do you define like workers? He said, people who work. You see my point, how you can continue to flatten this? So Donald Trump is a scab. We're workers. I think another um clarifying um piece to what Sean Fain is doing is that he is not talking about the power of a political party 
He's talking about the power of working families, of working people, that our decisions are created to guide our power to call our own shots, right? That's what Karen used to say, in fact. Karen used to say that we unified to fight to get to the next plateau so we fight again, win and lose, but you fight to get to the next level. And so we have to flatten the 24 discussion into he's not ours, he's not good for us, and he has done bad things to us, period. Now, the second part of this is that our power is in our solidarity, within our movement, and the way in which we create our moments to demonstrate this solidarity. And the demonstration of solidarity for UAW was the stand-up strikes, which netted them discernible, concretized power that is benefiting at this very moment, the households of the workers who stood up, right? So this is not about Trump or Biden. Quite frankly, it's about us as workers. And we just discussed who are workers, people who work. So you have to empower workers, people, voters, residents, us, to clarify what we need and what moves us further along in our journey of self-determination, of economic stability, right? Of being able to have a roof over our head and food in our refrigerators. That's the conversation. I'm not having another conversation, right? Because I already know that the people on the other side, they ain't gonna play by any rules. So whatever I bring that's dimensional and smart to the table, they're gonna play in my face. They're gonna do all sorts of silly stuff with that. If I clarify worker and scab and everything that we do is about building the power for working families to transform at the ballot box, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our school communities, then I'm making it real clear. And so you just stay right there. I do think that is part and parcel of why the Chicago Teachers Union has made an indelible impression on how things happen here in Chicago. Because students deserve schools that have. And then we fill in the blank with all of the things that schools should have, right? Then we also say we have to be, we have to have schools in a city that help to produce this on a macro level. It's simple, you deserve. You're a worker, we're gonna unify and fight together to get this and this and that and this and that because it's us, right? Remember the social contract that we used to live by, the social contract that undergirds the labor movement says that we will sacrifice the individual desires for the collective benefit of all of us, because we believe that that is what transforms society, creates stability, and provides true public safety. All right, let's move on to uh, a local uh, example of rules. We've been talking a lot about following rules uh, that have been set up as part of our greater social contract. So let's go uh, local with this. 
And uh, this was on my list of things to talk about. So we're going to get finally to that list. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Board of Education's recent decision, uh, lost track of time, Stacey, I think it was last week, on charter schools. Uh, don't get me started in charter schools, but I'll just kick it to you and get your thoughts. Uh, everybody's heard me on this subject many times. Um, so essentially, charters have lived, lived on. Uh, there was some talk, hmm, maybe uh, this Board of Ed might rein them in a little more. Uh, but they got, what is it, off the top of my head, most of them got at least another four-year contract uh, from the Board of Ed to operate. Uh, and uh, so that was the decision that they made. Your thoughts on that decision? So I'm old enough to know that renewals are governed by school code, and that is law. So a, the, the, a departure from the renewal template that we have will require a change in law. So that's number one. Um, number two, what we've also seen is a marginalization, even last year, of the number of years that they received for renewal. See, the charter lobby wanted you to believe that they were in danger of losing their charter. That wasn't going to happen. When, when the Chicago Teachers Union and our allies, the grassroots education movement, we went to Springfield and got a, um, a moratorium on school closings. So to not renew a charter would mean what? A school closing. And what are they? A school. So listen to this. Here's irony for you. The very movement that the charter school lobby has tried to destroy and marginalize benefits from the value of holding children harmless from the shenanigans of their movement and those same kids are benefiting from it now right so that's irony so that so th they were never in danger of having their renewal um taken from them because we worked as a movement on the other side to ensure that they had, that there was a moratorium on school closing. So that's number one. I think that, you know, people miss that point. I think the second point is, and I'll use an illustration of a school um, instituto. We are negotiating a contract with them right now. Last year when they were renewed, um, Chicago Public Schools and then the Board of Education ratified that they should work on two things in particular. Well a lot of things, but I'm going to talk about these two things in particular, that they have to work on making sure that they actually have a special education program and that they work on the bilingual supports that they offer students in their school community, because by and large, they receive students from the Latin community, right? Ask me if they did any of the things that they were told to do last year. You don't have to. I'll tell you, no, they haven't. And so now we're bargaining a contract where actual contract proposals revolve around them following the law, special education law, following the law for children who need the most. So we're at a table right now. We've already set a strike date for February 6th where we're asking them to follow the law. Now, like every charter school, they'll say, in 2023 or 2024, this is what they'll say now, Ben. Well, we don't have enough resources. And then and then we go, nah, nah, nah. You said y'all could do more with less, that you can't throw money at a problem, 
right? That was your mantra. So now you're saying something different. So let me get you straight. It does cost more money to educate students who have been regulated to an impoverished like lifestyle. So you do need more. Okay, check. We agree on more. What else can we agree on becomes the question. Because honestly, I was compelled last week down um, at CPS. And I was compelled because I'm paying attention to what we're doing here. So they go and grab every black and brown mother that they can find. They tell them to bring their black and brown child down to the Board of Education and talk about how unfair it would be to close their school. Well, <laughs> of course that's unfair. Because if we look at the neighborhoods in which many of, especially black families reside, you already closed all the other schools over there, right? So closing this means that it is officially a desert. So we're dealing with what Malcolm X would say, chickens coming home to roost. So in your zeal to promote privatization, um, charter school lobby, billionaires, right? You have disappeared public education on the west and south sides of Chicago. You've erected these privatized options that do not meet the needs of the community. And quite frankly, many of them are not meeting the needs of special education students in particular, or our students who need bilingual supports. So what's the point again? So here's the direction I think we gotta go in, Ben. I think that the leadership that the Board of Education is gonna have to show, and every stakeholder in this, is that we're gonna have to establish what the baseline is for our school system here. Like if I go to school in Roseland, if I go to school in Dunning, if I go to school in West Garfield Park, if I go to school in Galewood, if I go to school in Lincoln Park, right? Saganash, wherever I go to school, we'll have what? An art teacher, a librarian and a librarian, physical education, right? World language, technology courses, a uh, 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 fall, uh, winter and the spring sports program, band, orchestra, choir, drama. Can we agree that we need to establish baseline supports in schools? That's our first agreement. Again, the social contract. Do we agree that the whole of society requires a baseline? And then once you've established a baseline and families don't want that, or here's here's a word for you, choose to do something else, <clears throat> choose to do something else, they can choose something else because they have the thing that is required of our democracy. And our democracy, quite frankly, does require public schools to have a baseline of resources, infrastructure, supports, and staffing. Because if you don't have that, then you have the Chicago public schools. And uh, do it right in some places and in other places, we do it very wrong. All right, uh, I wrote down choose. Uh, so first of all, you, you wrote a rhetorical question. What's the point? What's the point of this? You said that at one, and I'm, I'll, I'll answer that question. The point of the charter school movement at least by the people who fund it and run it, uh, is to uh, weaponize 
poverty, if you will, or turn black people uh, against the teachers union. That's well, the point. That's well, the point. It's a political movement. It's a political movement. It is. And its purpose is to turn black people against teachers unions. That's the point of it, Stacey Davis Gate. That's been the point of it since they cooked this idea up back in the early O's. Well, know? school so. choice is not the early O's. Remember, I am a history teacher. School choice is a reaction to um, integration, Brown v. the Board of Education. That's where you get school choice, where you have state um, school district in southern states shutting down public schools, providing vouchers for families, white families, to attend the private school in that space. That's where choice and vouchers come from. See, but if we can't agree, going back to like the first part about the right wing and MAGA, if we can't agree on facts, then we can't even have this conversation, which is why this discussion is often short-circuited because you can't get Betsy DeVos. You can't get Austin Berg. You can't get Paul Ballas. You can't get none of those creeps to, um, to validate that as a fact, even though it's a fact. Like I taught the history, it is a fact. But if you can't engage on facts and you can just be a bully, a, a very violent bully, then you short circuit the discussion unless the people on the other side, they wanna fight too. Uh, yeah, so you are correct. Uh, the roots are deeper. They go back deeper than where I started. I'm talking about the modern, uh, modern school, uh, is the reform. I hate using that word. I have it in quotes. Deform. Come on. Deform. <laughs> Call it the deform movement. Uh, that, that's roughly in this century. And I remember the when in Chicago, uh, Mayor Daley's speech, oh man, uh, Baby Daley, the one in the middle, uh, his speech in about 2001 about uh, choice and uh, new opportunities and opening new schools. And, uh, and then they just use it to close to accentuate this whole process of school closings. Uh, and here we are. And now you're right. That is that is beautiful. The, 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 the school, ref, the, the movement against school reform, quote unquote, school reform, school deform, uh, protected schools are being closed. Now the charters are clinging to that. Hey! <laughs> That's how pathetic they are, is that they need us to save themselves because we actually believe in the social contract. We actually believe that black parents shouldn't have to be on one side or the other of this debate. Honestly, I am so offended in this moment that the school choice movement and the privatization movement wants me to fight my sister, my cousin, my aunt, and all of the people, black women who are raising children in this uh, city. You can't get me to fight people who I know are having a tough time surviving this, um, these ultimatums in the city. See, that's the other thing. They use the word choice. I use the word ultimatum. Choice is, um, cho you know what choice is? You'll love this one. I said it at the board meeting last week. You know what choice is? Jordans, right? You got the ones, which are very stylish. You can wear them with anything. I tend to like, I have an affinity for them. But then you have the Jordan twos which are perhaps the most comfortable pair of Jordans, maybe outside of the fives. 
and then you have the threes, which Michael Jordan says is his personal favorite, actually. Like the threes are one of his personal favorites. So you have ones, you have twos, and you have threes, right? Now you get to decide which one you want to wear, be it for comfort, be it for style, be it for, I want to be like Mike. Whatever it is, you get to choose because they're all of equal stature. You're making a choice based on another determination, right? But what if ain't no shoes in the closet? What you choosing from? Or what if the shoe that's in the closet is a Pro Wings from Payless with a hole in the bottom of them? You understand what I'm saying? Is that a choice or is that an ultimatum? Yeah. No, I, I listen. Don't get me started, Stacey, on the school choice movement. Let's, I, I mean, but I will, I, I, I'll, I'll go here. I feel that things have changed so much in Chicago um, in just how parents think about schools, how kids think about schools. Uh, and I've watched it so reinforced. My whole lifetime in this city, it's been reinforced. So when the Board of Education confronts this issue and all the different ramifications of it, uh, and they express in passing even, that president of the board expresses, well, maybe we should reconsider our selective enrollment kid schools, which I call the smart kid schools. I always get mad at me. I always say that. Well, and, and people should get mad at you because that's not what selective enrollment is. Selective enrollment is not smart kids. That's not gifted education. It's selective education. Okay, but you got to take a test to get in. There's a guy who never did well in tests. Yeah. I you know, that's why I'm like, oh, they get those schools. But you think that everyone that attends there did well on that test. Well, that, but that's what they tell us. Yes. There are other mitigating factors that used to go into the formula that allows people in. It is selective. It is not merit and it is not gifted. It is selective. Well, and uh, but they do promote. Okay, that is true. Well, yeah. They promote this idea that their kids are special, all right? I know this, Stacey. Starbucks promotes that they have the only good coffee in America, and we know that's not true. You can promote whatever you want to promote. Like, that is a part of this capitalistic society. And, again, we got to agree on facts. It's not merit-based, and it's not gifted education. That's not what that is. It is selective enrollment. And deal what it means to be selected. Deal what it means to have criteria under which people are selected. And then deal with it when you see a disparity in the amount of Black children that get to attend those schools. Well, that's, that, that, yeah. I've watched that transition. I've watched that evolution, if you will, or devolution. Use your word on that. As a quote unquote, all right, selective enrollment schools become whiter and whiter. I watched it talk about segregation in Chicago. And I, I know how parents and kids talk when they're at that moment, when they're about to select a school. And the kid is part of the conversation too. The I, kid think part of the conversation. I think it is absolutely cruel to put 12 and 13 year old kids, 12, 13 and 14 year old kids through that process. It is mean. It is, do you, you, you've raised children. You've been, you were a basketball coach. You know how fragile that sixth, seventh, and eighth grade those years are for our young people. Yeah. Their, you know, self-actualization, 
their understanding of you know peer groups being excluded being included peer pressure and then on top of that you're telling them the only way you're going to college is if you go to whitney young northside prep or jones like that is literally what we're telling them at the same time we're telling them that but oh yeah by the way our kids need mental health um uh, supports and resources and yet selective enrollment look the will of chicago will shine through with this debate the resolution didn't say get rid of it the resolution said let's strengthen our neighborhood schools because everybody isn't selected to go into those other schools for whatever reason and here's another thing ben that i want people to start listening to so you got the 78 um the new neighborhood that's being planned and the, the White Sox Stadium is supposed to anchor that development from what I'm reading in the newspapers, right? You think they building a selective enrollment school over there or a neighborhood school? <laughs> uh, no, but like real talk, yeah. you see the brand new neighborhood. Yeah. You're yeah, gonna bring people in to live in this neighborhood. And if selective enrollment schools are the crumbs de la creme, I expect for one to be built in that neighborhood. But you know, just like I know, they're gonna build a neighborhood school in that, just like Pat Dow has been working on a neighborhood school because presumably the families that select the 78 are the families that live in the like South Loop portion of her, her, her ward. Mm -hmm. White kids don't always get into selective enrollment schools either. You're looking at one. So, so, so again, it's yeah. selective, which means that people are excluded. So yeah. what do you do with all the kids that have been excluded? I Well, if you're in Evanston High School in the, in the 60s and 70s, you put them in the lower level classes. That's where I was. Well, <laughs> you, yeah. like this, you do with like, so the 47th Ward, um, those organized families in that space, they said that we don't want to live and die on whether or not our children get into lane tech. Yeah. So they actually work to um, make sure that Von Steuben, Von Steuben and Amundsen actually had the support and the resources that it needed. So when their child was not selected for lane tech, that it wasn't a demerit or a missed opportunity. And so I think you, we got to like think about it in those ways. And like when I hear people say, they're gonna move from the city if you cancel selective enrollment schools. And I go, and when they move from the city, they're gonna go to another city or suburb where they're gonna send their kid to a neighborhood high school. Yeah, they will, and I got news for you. I, I, I hate to break it to you, uh, parents who are moving from the city, uh, but you're gonna go to another school where there's testing and there's regimentation uh, and there's track systems and there's uh, the whispers that Stacy was just getting at, that if you're not in this track, you're not going to go to Harvard. You're not going to go to Princeton. You'll be lucky if you can go to fill in the blank. I'm not going to discredit the school. And that's the discredit the school. There's nothing wrong with having a selective enrollment. The, the actual resolution, if people care to read, it just says that we have to establish a baseline. We have to establish an opportunity in the neighborhood where people are living 
because everyone is not getting into a selective enrollment school. And so that's actually the, that's the scandal. Oh, okay. So if, if we want to go back to historical roots, like you did when we were talking about choice, let's, let's be clear. This whole system of selected enrollment or magnets, whatever they call it at any given moment, was created to avoid busing. It was classic Chicago. So it you was, mean that everything about schools is about not having black kids get an education? Yes. And everything about schools is about black families figuring out how to win the Hunger Games. That's what you just told me. Yes, and I'll go one step further. It's about reassuring white parents that they're not going to have their kid in a classroom with a black kid. I, I yeah, I said it. That's what it's about. And they'll you know, say it's I said it and then they'll just leave my social media in tatters. <laughs> what did you just say? I didn't I hear. Said, but they'll say I said it and leave. No, my I said it in tatters. I said <laughs> it. You guys writing the stuff, you know it as well as I do. If you're white, you know it. And this this always kills me, Stacey. We're giving Paul Ballas his next column in the Chicago <laughs> Tribune. Just spell the name right, Paul. Okay, that's all I asked. The last guy to spell my name got it wrong. Just spell it right. It's not a hard name, all right? Even I know how to spell it. I can't spell My point is, this is, let me focus and say this the way it should be said. I've been in many social settings, Stacey with white people, okay? This is me talking, not Stacey Davis Gates, about school. And I've heard the conversations. And this, I've been in these social settings going back to the 60s when I was a little kid listening to white people talk about the situation. And when white people talk, by and large, about where their kids goes to school, there's this fear in their minds that if their kid is in, and I'll say this euphemistically, the wrong classroom, it's all downhill. That's it. No going back. You make a joke about it, like rich parents on the west side of New York fighting to get their kid into the right preschool because you get in the right preschool, then you get in the right grammar school, then you go to the right high school, and then you go to the right college, you know, and then of course nothing ever works out the way you plan it anyway, the reality of life but I've been hearing that, I know what they're saying when they say it they see, you see this country immigrants come to this country, Stacey and the first thing they learn is oh, black people are here and everybody else is here and you can see my hands the listeners, it's and that's what you learn in this country. So, Stacy, I am telling you, I've been in those rooms. I've heard the parents. I'm still in those rooms, okay? So these policies that you're talking about, like, they all go back to trying to reassure white people that there is a place for them in the schools. That's why you have magnet schools. They're magnet, the little concept that came up with a metaphor, Stacy. It's like they're going to draw people to the schools with special stuff. You follow what I'm saying? And now those magnet schools have become, I call them smart kid schools, because that's effectively what you're saying, people, city of Chicago, that these are the smart kids. They're better than all the other kids. You no, know, what they're saying yeah. is that parents have taken out a full-time job and have spent a, a boatload of money to get their kids into a private, uh, a public school in Chicago. Like, look, the onion that is education in Chicago is being peeled back. And people are crying. 
see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, I did. See what I did there? The but no, for real, let me, let me stop the jokes. Look, the impact of policies that are supposed to provide equity in a deeply segregated city are always going to be half measures because the actual things that you need are integrated neighborhoods, right? Integrated neighborhoods force government to not defund black people, but in lieu of integration, you get selective enrollment and magnet. And selective enrollment and magnet do provide the most multicultural experience, the most diverse experience that children in Chicago will ever get without it being on a sports team somewhere, right? Or in a choir somewhere, because that's how my children get it. They get it on sports teams and they get it in the fine arts when they do city things, right? But they don't necessarily receive it in their schools because of the segregation. What does that mean? It means that we gotta set some very big goals in this moment about what we want CPS to look like and sound like, not tomorrow, but in the next 20 years. Do we want school communities that are diverse? Then that means we want neighborhoods that are diverse. So when you're building the 78, what are the provisions for um, economic diversity? When you're building the 78, what are the provisions for loans that are not redlined so you know people of color, including Black people, will be excluded from that? What is the intention of diversity, economic and racial diversity in the 78 so we can see if that neighborhood school can be what we need it to be down the road? Because we already know what was done. And we are living with the impact of those decisions, privatization. You fire all the black teachers from the public schools and you shut those down because they're not doing well. Well, now the research shows that one black teacher for um, anyone, black or white, brown, whomever is in that classroom is a benefit because of the experience and the expertise and the skill that they bring to that uh, school community. It breaks down barriers, but you couldn't tell like Romnet when he closed off 50 of those schools, because when he closed those schools, he fired black teachers. That's what he did. And then all of the school closing, C. Paul Vallis and what's that other man, Arnie Duncan, they did it too. So you have this precipitous decline and all of the things that number one, help to stabilize black communities because those are middle-class jobs. Those are working class jobs. Right, so they stabilize communities at the same time. You look, the social contract in Chicago has been shredded, and the and here's another one: the chickens are here roosting, and wow. leadership and movement and clarity of the mission are going to be like most important in the next five to ten years. Yeah. And I'll tell you this right now, going back to the 78, tying it together. So the 78, ladies and gentlemen, we talked about this in the show, but for rookies out there or just listening for the first time, 78 is a big chunk of land in the South Loop or just south of Roosevelt Road around the Chicago River. It's been undeveloped for years. The city is trying to figure out how to develop it for years. They can't, they can't get it done. It's been from one plan to the other. Uh, they got a big pot of TIF money ready to uh, kick to it. 
as soon as they figure out what they're going to build. How about this, Stacey? They're, the money's there. As soon as you tell us how we want to build it, we, we'll spend the money there. Uh, a little different attitude than they have toward uh, education in Chicago. Uh, the White Sox stunned the world, at least most of the world didn't know about this, uh, where they leaked to the Sun-Times a couple of weeks ago, a plan to build a stadium, a new baseball yard. They just built one 30 years ago, but now they want a new one uh, in the 78. Uh, and this time we're going to get it right, the White Sox say. Uh, the developer who runs the 78 is delighted because he couldn't figure out how to develop his land. And now they have an excuse. They have the White Sox stadium. They're going to use public dollars. At least that's, well, they haven't come out and said that, but that's my bet. So Stacy, people who are going to push to get this linked to helping black people in the Chicago are going to be uh, in as a difficult situation as I am when I say, why can't we take this quote unquote migrant crisis and use it to put black people in Chicago to work? Nothing ever done for poor black people. It's done to poor black people. And you know this as well as I do, because you're a student of history. And so they're going to use the 78. The excuse will be they want to uh, protect downtown and bring economic development to downtown. And it will not be, in my humble opinion, and, and you challenge me right now to help anybody who's poor, but particularly black people. Well, I'm not going to challenge you because we just talked about the trajectory of um, the life experiences of black people in Chicago. So that's not a challenge that, and it's not even cynicism. It is um, a hypothesis based on, you know, generations of evidence, right? And so I'm not going to challenge that. What I am going to do is say that you have to put your marker down on this one and you have to organize around what you need. The difficulty in this is that there are so many needs. Like, um, you know, I had a, the meeting that I just left before I came here is about how is the Chicago Public Schools holding um, the influx of newcomers? And, you know, just dealing with the impacts of the members who are calling, emailing, and meeting about their Google Translate on their phone, because that's the way in which they're interacting with students. Um, at one point, there were a handful, maybe a little more students, newcomers at Nicholson Elementary School over in Inglewood. And um, Nicholson, I think one in three before the newcomers arrived, one in three students were unhoused already. So this is an all black school. And in this all black school, one in three of those students were already unhoused. And then on top of that, they received maybe a handful, a little more newcomers there. What does that mean, right? What, what, what does that even mean? And what do you even do with that? Like there's, there was scant infrastructure and resources for Nicholson to deal with the unhoused crisis that they're dealing with, right? Nicholson Elementary School was one of the schools we put on our back back in 2019 to fight for housing for our students, right? You remember Lori told us we were crazy, that that wasn't an issue for negotiating table, right? And that she refused to do it because it was ridiculous. Now through that negotiation, we did come out of, uh, we, we walked away from the table 
with supports for those families. And those supports are being exhausted. Still, the vast majority of those children are Black children. Because when you tear down Ida B, Robert Taylor, Cabrini Green, Henry Horner, what you are doing is tearing down housing stock and you never rebuilt what you tore down and that which you rebuilt is unaffordable. And so they're unhoused. So we are dealing with not a crisis of migrants or newcomers, not a crisis of just 20,000 unhoused uh, Chicago public school students, you're dealing with a crisis of a social contract that we ain't that we haven't even revisited to um, agree on again, mm -hmm. right? And 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 that's where I think we got to do a lot of work. Um, you know, our contract is going to expire at the end of June, and we're taking the social contract um, to the city of Chicago. Like I love the fact that you know, the right wing keeps showing our good mayor on both sides of the negotiating table. It's actually pretty funny. Um, because we've always been on both sides of the negotiating table, Ben. His children go to school at CPS. My children go to school at CPS. He's a homeowner in the city, he and his wife. So he's always been on both sides of the table, right? Always been on both sides of the table. The fear factor that the right wing is trying to say is that we might actually educate black children in this city. <laughs> like we might actually come together and create policies and enshrine them in a teacher's contract where women are in control, like 80 plus percent of them. See, that's the real threat of now. It's not about selective enrollment or neighborhood schools. You got like generations of history that shows that very few elected spaces and powerful people gave a damn about education. You can see that with your own two eyes. What they cared about is the contract that they held in this society where the rich continue to get richer, the working class continue to beg, and the poor are criminalized. So I have to say this. You, you mentioned uh, the upcoming contract. Mayor Johnson, if you're listening, I'm going to tell you right now, no matter what you do with that upcoming teacher's contract, you will not get credit from anyone in this town. I'm just telling you that. That's the way it is. You gave the police officers of Chicago a raise. Do you hear me, Stacy? He gave them a raise. Okay, in the face of all that opposition that said he was the try to paint him as the greatest enemy to police that the city has seen. Gave him a raise, Stacey. Something that Lori Lightfoot didn't do, something that uh Rom didn't do, uh, something that Baby Daly didn't do at this stage. Well, they didn't have to. And how did they and how did they respond? All of a sudden they discovered the arbitration issue. And the raise doesn't I read that. In the sub-time, Stacey, I'm not making this up. You go back and read it yourself. They go, well, the, the raise is a bone he threw to the police officer. What really matters is the arbitration. I'm like, no cop knows about the arbitration. They know about the money in their paycheck. What well, did the times tell the Board of Ed? What, what did they tell teachers when they went on strike to get more nurses? They go, shut up and take the money. That's what the well, sub-times told them. I'm telling you what they said, Stacey. Well, so, they often tell women to shut up. They, <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, mean, I just watched that hypocrisy on display. So it's going to be triple that when it comes to they're going to find something else to bash them on. No matter. So, so listen to this, because this is my 2024 meditation. Like one of my favorite authors is Toni Morrison. And, you know, we can wax poetic about her prose, um, the construction of her narrative, the fact that her books only saw black people, all of that stuff. What, what is most profound to me about Toni Morrison was her perspective. And her perspective being, she made it very clear. Her perspective is, if I try to meet the objectives set before me by white supremacy, that's the only thing that I would do in life. Right. She used the example in one interview that if white supremacy says that my brain is too small and therefore I'm not smart enough, then what it could have me doing is researching and writing and speaking on panels and doing interviews on my brain being just as big as everyone else's brain. And if I do that, then I am working on their agenda. My life isn't fulfilled working on the agenda of white supremacy and the rejection of it and the way that they want me to reject it. So she made a choice. She created a perspective that I can challenge white supremacy through my own self-determination. I can challenge white supremacy by creating objectives and goals that speak to the life's work that I want to leave in this society as a legacy. And she did that. She wrote beautiful prose about the complexity and the dimension of black life, right? And so we have an understanding of the impact of white supremacy on little black girls through Pecola, right? In the bluest eye. We understand the impact, the gross trauma insinuated upon Black people through Beloved, right? She has given us leadership and direction because she chose not to play by the rules of white supremacy, but to create a space in which she gave us liberation. She gave us a, a way. And so that's what I want the movement to think about in this moment, because ain't a damn right winger nowhere in this world ever going to bless Black people getting educated. So my work is not to convince them because that's a losing proposition. We've already said in the fourth quarter with three minutes left, they going to make up a new rule and tell me they got 10 fouls instead of six fouls. That's true. So why would I waste my time playing with them when I know they're going to cheat anyway? My time is spent going back to Sean Fang, clarifying, excuse me, defining and then clarifying who we are, who they are, what the stakes are, and what we need to do to get to where we need to be, period. And so that's what I would encourage in this moment, especially for our movement. Of course, the Chicago Sun-Times, of course, the Chicago Tribune, of course, all of these places that have benefited from a status quo, their owners, right, their editorial boards, of course, they're going to say everything that we're talking about and doing is ridiculous. Why wouldn't they? It doesn't benefit them. They have resigned themselves that the social contract that the rest of us need in order to like hold ourselves up is irrelevant 
because they're more powerful without the social contract. I could go uh, further down that road, but I'm going to hold off. We've taken up a much time and I have two issues I wanted to ask you about. I haven't even got to them. So it's, they deserve a warrant, a full show, and I'll just have to bring Stacey Davis back. So Yolanda, get ready for the text message. I figured out, ladies and gentlemen, the secret to get Stacey Davis Gates on this show. I sort of hinted at it in that little shout out to Yolanda. Um, so tomorrow there'll be a, a city council vote on uh, Rosanna Rodriguez. I think there'll be a vote. Who Lord knows what, how they're going to play this. Uh, Alderwoman uh, Rodriguez's proposal for a ceasefire at the CTU has come out for it. Ceasefire uh, in Gaza. And uh, so, you know, your thoughts about this foreign policy is not something that the Chicago Teachers Union has ventured into in a lot of ways over the years, but obviously you felt compelled to do so here. Take it away, Stacey. Well, look, um, our union is Chicago. Like our members live in the city. Our members teach in all 50 wards in the city. We live in all 50 wards. We teach in all 50 wards of the city. The idea that my members are only concerned with their wages and benefits should already be something that people don't ever believe in because since 2010, that hasn't been our reality. Our reality since Karen Lewis in particular has been that our union is a vehicle to transform the lives of the people who need it the most. And 10 times out of 10, those are the children and their families who need the Chicago public schools. Right. So that's a happy engagement in how we see the world. And so back, I think, at our November meeting, November 1st meeting, our union, our House of Delegates, our highest governing body with hundreds of people. Right. They voted um, for a ceasefire. Right. They recognized that those who were murdered um, in Israel um that that was horrific and painful our members recognize that the hostages that have been taken need to be released right and and that has been specified and they also recognize that there are children in gaza and the greatest number of people who've lost their lives are children and these are people who care for your children they don't they should never see a difference in the humanity of children be it in Gaza or in Israel, be it in Roseland, Inglewood, Dunning, or Saganash, right? Those things hold static that we are supposed to love them because they're human beings. And that is what our members did. They made a statement in that way. And not only did they make a statement, they also created like a library of supports for our educators to make sure that number one, they had a basis for which they can engage with their students on these issues, that they understood the dimension of these issues, and that they could reach out to their union and get advice, get support, and how to like instruct and to lead in their classrooms and their school communities in this moment. But what ends up happening with these issues that they all get conflated into one thing because politics are all around, right? So you would have me to believe that Ray Lopez can tell me about the dimensions of the conflict in the Middle East. You, I'm supposed to believe that? Or I'm supposed to believe that Ray Lopez sees this as an opportunity 
to get another spot on Fox News. I, I don't say that just to punch him in, you know, in any way verbally. I say that to say that this is how politics creep into issues and the debate becomes defiled because people aren't having a debate on impact. And then people will say, well, your voice doesn't mean anything. The hell, it doesn't mean anything. It does mean something. And you can already see that. I'm proud to be in the Illinois Federation of Teachers that also call for a bilateral ceasefire. You understand what I'm saying? Like these are things that educators are saying that we don't want war, we want peace. And we expect our leadership to lead us in that direction, right? But when you have provocateurs like a Lopez who is leveraging this to be on Fox News, then you get all this messiness and silliness that surrounds real issues that impact real people. I love both people. I love people on both sides of this issue. And this ain't no both sideism. It's just a fact that I have relationships with people on both sides of this issue. And it is also a fact that I voted with my union in this way, right? And that's the way we're gonna leave. We have Palestinian students in our spaces and we have Jewish students in our spaces. Our job is to lead in a way that reestablishes a social contract where both of those kids can be in that classroom and they're true and the truth of their humanity and their dignity and their integrity. That's the stuff we've forgotten. So every discussion, quite frankly, about what is happening both in our international space and in our domestic space will always come back to what is that social contract? What do we agree on? Because right now the unraveling of that social contract is chaos. All right, uh, Stacey went back to her uh, high school roots. She was a high school teacher. Uh, and today's lecture was on the social contract. I wrote it down a hundred times. I'm going to go back and read Hobbs and Locke, Leviathan. I read all that stuff. Man, I'm struggling with that. You have to have a dictionary, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just going to warn you when you take the deep dive. But uh, no, it's all true. You absolutely, you got you to gotta play by the rules that exist. You got to honor those rules. If you think the rules are unfair, you go to court, you get a judge to change the rules. You or know? you get a union to push past the rules. You get a union. Or you join with community and a movement bigger than even the union yeah. movement to transform. Like, look this newcomer situation that we are experiencing here, again, social contract. What do we do with the social contract? And social contracts need funding as well. You yeah. know? Hey, look, it's not a crisis, it's an opportunity. If a big chunk of vacant land at Roosevelt Road and the Chicago River can be seen as not a vacant land, but an opportunity by the White Sox to get the public to fund their stadium, then why can't we see an influx of people who want to work coming to Chicago after we kicked out how many thousands of people, Stacey, as an opportunity? And by the way, we have a lot of people in Chicago who need to work as well. Why can't we see? I don't Well, because then you have to stop excluding um returning citizens from jobs. So if you can get a newcomer a permit to work here, then how come the brothers that's standing on Ashland, you know, up and down Ashland also can't get 
that felony erased and also get a job. See, I live in the world of and, right? And I think that movement, I think that the social contract requires the word and, not but or the word or, it has to be the word and. I don't have a problem with a newcomer getting a job and a black man who's returning from prison also getting a job. Both things have to happen in the type of society where we get to exist. I agree. We'll close with that. I agree 100% with that one. Stacy. it's been too long, so happy new year. Welcome back, Connor. Uh, one of my favorite TV shows. I love that show. I make these references to people and they just look at me. It feels so good to be home with you, man. Yeah, no, it's, hey, it's been too long, Stacey. But uh, yeah, I love, I will love Welcome Back, Connor. Absolutely love it to death. We're not going to go into it. I just love every bit about it. I've watched every set. Uh, all right, we'll just leave with a prediction. Uh, by the, in, uh, was it two Sundays, Super Bowl? My beloved Bears will not be there. I'll oh, be surprised. They haven't been there since 2006, I want to say. Yeah, 2000. Damn, wow. 2006 was the Justin Timberlake, uh, Janet Jackson Super Bowl. Go back and look it up, millennials. Uh, and um, so your prediction, uh, who will be victorious in the Super Bowl? It will be Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, and uh, not the Detroit uh, Lions, unfortunately, the San Francisco 49ers. Who will be victorious? Go. Taylor Swift. <laughs> I think that's a coded way of saying Patrick Mahomes will lead the Kansas City. The guy no, home. that's not a coded way. That's me being pissed off that I got to hear about a pop star at a football game. Every cut to the crowd is there. Like, knock it off. Because if I'm at a Taylor Swift concert, every cut to the crowd shouldn't be of Travis Kelsey and his brother. It, it, like, I'm watching football. Now, before the game, after the game, but every freaking thing about the Kansas City cannot be about our dear sister Taylor. And I mess with Taylor. And it cannot be. Just like Beyonce's... Um, renaissance movie was not about jay-z like everyone gets to have their moment about what it is that they're doing and love taylor and the swifties that they're they think that they're bringing to the nfl she don't play <laughs> she sings and usher is doing halftime so knock it off nfl <laughs> by the way touch football is coming on strong uh shout out Ani, uh, who will be on the show, we're talking about the Super Bowl. He coaches the flag football team. And it's coming on strong. I mean, I love I coach flag football. I love flag football. In fact, no, I would have been a beast if we would have had flag football when I was in school. Like I love to see it. Love it. It is so I love football. I, I don't like the brutality and the impact of it, but I like the intensity um and, and the athleticism of it. And like the 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 decision making that happens under pressure, I, I love it. Yeah, I'm with you 100. percent And and flag football to me uh, is just it's actually in some ways more it's it's more fun than in my humble. I don't think you know what if I were the ruler of the world, I wouldn't let t tackle football kids play tackle until like freshman year of high school. It would be all flag football before that. Well, you, you know? would put out the south. Because <laughs> no. they ain't hearing that. Oh, I know, I know. Chicago's not hearing it. So, uh, but we played flag football. I coached it, and it's a blast. And the fact that it's 
taken on with uh, girl sports is awesome because it's just all about quickness, learning how to cut, uh, and just playing as a team in a unit. I can't speak enough of it, so I'm excited this is about so it. Right, so yeah. then you ask yourself, why don't the Chicago Public Schools offer a sports program, fall, winter, and spring, at every elementary school that feeds into a high school? You see what I'm saying? I know. I've been preaching this forever. It should have not just sports against high schools, an intramural program. The kids, not every kid is going to make the team. I wasn't good enough to make the Emerson High School basketball team, but I played every intramural sport there was in the world. And in my mind, I was Norm Van Leer. In my mind, I was Tiny Archibald. Okay, in reality, I was nothing like a butt in my mind. So I'm with you 100%. Preaching to the choir, Stacey. Hey, and last thing, and I'll, and I'll let you close. Last thing, though. You know the only thing at Notre Dame that even compares to the football team? What? It's bookstore basketball. It is literally an intramural. Yeah, yeah, I and we'll close with that. One thing we do not agree on is Notre Dame. Do not Amen. get started on Notre Dame. I, <laughs> I've been rooting against Notre Dame since I moved to Evanston in 1966 with Northwestern Notre Dame. Anyway, but what North who? Yeah, North. <laughs> no, you forgot how we beat you in 1995. Oh my God, no! Like, look, Tony Rice, the 87. Like again. <laughs> Wait, black, a black quarterback at yeah. the University of Notre Dame, yeah. Proposition 48-42, I can't remember which one in particular, but he defied every freaking odd obstacle that was put before him by a very racist sports um, media space, and he won that damn national championship. That's when Stacey Davis Gates becomes, well, that's when Stacey Davis becomes a Notre Dame football a fan. You can thank Tony Rice for that. Do not make that mistake. Put the gates on Davis if you're not speaking to someone who's not married in the gates. I have made that mistake, ladies and gentlemen, and paid for it. And I can't help myself. I see Davis, I say gates. I just, sorry. Oh, she, was, she was young then. It was like 87. And what was that, in elementary school then? No, but I'm talking about a certain Henry, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, all right. Uh, I made that mistake. Boy, did I make all right, very good, Stacy. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on the show, uh, and also want to thank producer Chris. Stacy uh, agrees with me when I say, "Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love. Take care." No, of take it out your contract, not out of petty cash. Remove <laughs> the petty cash when you like put it in writing. They gotta have it there, or you get to go on strike. Yeah, go on strike. Great, great advice. Take care, Stacy. And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows. Get Benny J bonus interviews, read columns from Ben Jarofsky, and other great reader writers, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben on Instagram, at Benny J Show, and don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. <laughs>